We're in our message series on the life of Jesus, the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man, performing miracles and most importantly, teaching about who he is and and what life is all about. And the life of Jesus is documented in four books in the part of the Bible called the New Testament. Those four books that document the life of Jesus are called the Gospels. And today we're gonna be in chapter 14 of the Gospel of John, if you wanna make your way there in your Bibles. It is the night that Jesus will be arrested, the night before the day when Jesus will be crucified on the cross. But before those things take place, we find Jesus sharing the famous Last Supper with his 12 disciples in the upper room, a borrowed dining room above a home in Jerusalem. They're sharing a meal to celebrate the Jewish festival of Passover, But Jesus is going to use the occasion as an opportunity to give some of his most important teachings to his disciples. This is the final talk from the coach to the players in the locker room before the big game, except the coach is God in the flesh. And they're not talking about a game, but how to truly live for Jesus. And last week we got to listen in as Jesus dropped some bombshells on his disciples, interrupting their lovely Passover meal with the news that one of them would betray him to his enemies, that he, Jesus, would soon be killed and that Peter would deny even knowing him three times before that next morning arrived. You can imagine the mood in the room To say these revelations left the disciples troubled would be an understatement. So let's see what happens next as Jesus speaks into this atmosphere of anxiety that has suddenly filled the room. We're going to jump in in John chapter 14 verse 1. Underline this first phrase. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. So the theme, the goal of what Jesus is going to share here is comfort. That's his goal, to comfort his disciples and give them hope for the future. But don't miss this. Right off the bat, if Jesus is telling his disciples, let not your heart be troubled, track with me here, then it means it's possible for them to choose to not have a troubled heart. In other words, Jesus is not going to tell his disciples to do something that is impossible for them to do. So if he's telling them, let not your heart be troubled, it means that's actually possible. For you and I, any day, any time we find ourselves with a troubled heart, an anxious heart, we can choose to not have it be so. We can choose to set our mind on the word of God, to listen to the Lord. We can talk to the Lord, pour out our heart to the Lord, and we can choose to no longer have a troubled mind. It's a choice. It's not an easy one, but it's a choice. And the apostle Paul called it bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's such a great picture. Bringing every thought into captivity into the obedience of Christ. It's the process of confronting the thoughts that are troubling you with the truth of the word of God and demanding of your thoughts that they bow down to the truth of God. So I know those moments when we're anxious, when we're troubled, and these thoughts just seem to be flying around our heads faster than we can get a handle on them. The Apostle Paul says, you need to grab a hold of those thoughts and say, yeah, I know that my brain is thinking this, that I'm scared of this, but this is what the Word of God says. So that thought, you need to bow down before Jesus. Because Jesus has spoken something greater than that concern. He's spoken a greater truth. So write a note about this on your outlines. Jesus tells his disciples they can choose to not have a troubled heart. They can choose to not have a troubled heart. And we are about to hear from Jesus, the word himself, some specific reasons why the disciples did not have to be troubled despite all the bad news they've just received and why you and I can also choose to likewise not be troubled no matter how bad the news is that we may be dealing with. Jesus goes on and he says to his disciples, you believe in God, believe also in me. If we were to render that verse the way it's written in the original Greek, the gist of it would be what you believe about God, believe about me. The way you believe in God, believe in me because I am God. 
Verse two, he says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now again, in the original Greek, that word mansions just means rooms, it means dwellings, it means abodes. It doesn't necessarily mean a house or a room. A place to stay is really what the idea is. So I hope you're not gonna get hung up on like, well, Jeff, I need to know, do I get a room in heaven? Do I get a mansion in heaven? It's heaven, that's what you need to know. I promise you won't get there and be like, oh, I was expecting something bigger. That's not gonna happen. It's a place to stay, that's the idea. Whatever situation you're in, whatever you're going through in life, if you belong to Jesus, you have the hope of heaven. That's the first reason to not let your heart be troubled. Write this down, first reason, we're going to heaven. We're going to heaven. Whatever the it is that is troubling you, it won't always be that way. For the believer, this life is the worst it's ever gonna be. For the non-believer, tragically, this life is the best it's ever going to be. C.S. Lewis said, if heaven and hell exist, nothing else matters. If heaven and hell don't exist, then nothing matters. Let not your heart be troubled. If you've given your life to Jesus, you have the unshakable hope of heaven. When Jesus sent his disciples out to minister in pairs, they came back and they were rejoicing because they had encountered people who were possessed by demons and when they spoke to those demons in the name of Jesus, the demons left the person. And they come back so excited about this saying, man, even the demons obey us, Jesus. What does Jesus say to them when they come back? He says, I think it's on your outlines. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather, and then underline this, rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Here's the translation of what Jesus is saying. Don't get your joy from things going well in your life. Because I have news for you. Things will not always go well in your life. Have you observed this truth? Things will not always go well in your life. So Jesus says, instead, get your joy from something that's never going to change. You belong to the Lord. You're going to heaven. You're saved. Get your joy from that because no matter what happens in your life, how dark the hour is, that truth will not change. Once you belong to Jesus, you belong to Jesus. Now really pay attention to what Jesus says here. Next. Because in my personal opinion, it's pretty clear that Jesus is not only talking about the rapture, but he's talking about the idea that all of those who die as part of the church, all of those who die from the time the church was born in Acts chapter two and 32 AD, all the believers who died since then up until the future point of the rapture are all going to arrive together at the same place in time where we will meet Jesus as we will read in the clouds. So hang with me if this sounds weird to you. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Underline that word go. So very simple so far, right? Jesus is telling them he's going to leave the earth and return to heaven to prepare a place for the church, for believers. Now let me ask you, does it make any sense that Jesus would leave the earth to prepare heaven for the church and then not bring the church to heaven? That doesn't make any kind of sense. That's why in the next verse Jesus says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and what? Receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus is being very clear here, don't overcomplicate it. He's saying he's going to return for his church, but he's not returning to stay with his church on the earth. Rather, Jesus is returning to gather them, to receive his church, to be with him where he is, which is heaven. That's why he says that where I am, there you may be also. 
And this becomes even clearer when we read how the Apostle Paul wrote about this in 1 Thessalonians 4. I didn't have room to put it on your outline, so I'll just read it to you. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 18, the Apostle Paul describes the same thing. He says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. So Paul is saying, I'm emphatic on this. I'm using the name of God. I'm saying, thus saith the Lord on this that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So there you have Jesus in this time in the future. He's gonna leave heaven, but why? Keep reading and it says, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, with those who have already died, those who preceded us, to meet the Lord on the earth. No, in the air, it says. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. And then Paul says, just as Jesus did, therefore comfort one another with these words. So Paul, again, is very clear. He describes the same thing Jesus does. Jesus leaving heaven but not to come to the earth. Jesus doesn't even make it that far because we meet him, quote, in the air. Rather, his purpose is to gather his church and all believers who have been a part of his church since the church was born in 32 AD and take them to be in heaven with him. Jesus leaves heaven and the church leaves the earth, meet in the air, in the clouds, and return to heaven. So perhaps you're thinking, Jeff, why are you making a big deal about this? I mean, I know why, Jeff, because you're crazy about the rapture and you always talk about the rapture whenever you can. But why is this a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because many churches don't believe in or teach the rapture. They only believe in the second coming, that at some point in the future, Jesus is going to return to the earth, which we believe too. But they believe only in that, no rapture. However, as you read through the Bible, and you study everything it says about the return of Jesus, you're gonna find all those prophecies that talk about Jesus coming again in the future will really fall into two buckets, two piles that are different. One bucket, one pile is a group of prophecies that talk about Jesus coming to gather his church. And the other pile talks about Jesus coming to rule and reign on the earth. Now the reason for that is simple because Jesus is going to return twice, once to gather his church at the rapture, to spare his church from the great tribulation, and a second time he's going to return at the end of the great tribulation when he's gonna come back with his church to rule and reign on the earth. This is the most simple way I can put it. The rapture is Jesus coming for his church, the second coming is Jesus coming with his church. The rapture is Jesus coming for his church. The second coming is Jesus coming with his church to rule and reign on the earth. Now if you don't understand that, you're gonna have a very, very hard time explaining how in the world the Bible can be talking about the same event when Jesus says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. But the Apostle Paul also writes this in 1 Thessalonians 3. He says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. With some of his saints? Just the saints who have already died? That's not what it says. It says the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So in the first verse I read, Jesus is coming for his church. In the second verse, he's coming with his church. It's literally impossible for them to be talking about the same event. Jesus has to come for his church before he can come with his church. The rapture and the second coming being separate events is the only logical explanation for the two future returns of Jesus that are prophesied in the Bible. Now, if these are new concepts to you, I understand this is weird. We always say, the rapture is the most preposterous doctrine in the entire Bible. The only thing it's got going for it is that it's true. And if you want to learn more about it, the rapture is covered in the first couple of verses of Revelation 4, 
while the second coming is covered in Revelation 19. And you can go online and listen to our messages on that and study that more deeply. Now, a couple of quick notes. I've heard a lot of believers and even pastors make fun of the idea of the rapture. And here's what I wanna say about this. Jesus and the apostle Paul both believed in the rapture and they both taught on it. And so I'm gonna go with their view on the subject and I recommend you do as well. Secondly, I've heard a lot of believers and again even pastors say, well there's no point in studying end time stuff or, or revelation or anything like that because we don't need to be scaring people. Both Jesus and the Apostle Paul taught the rapture as something that's meant to comfort believers. It's meant to be a comfort to believers. So if you're ever thinking, I don't want to study this because you know it, it's scary and I don't need to be dealing with that, you're missing the entire point and whoever you've listened to before has been leading you astray because Jesus put this stuff in the Bible for the purpose of comforting believers and comforting his church. And again, as I always say, is it at all comforting if the news of the end times is, listen, here's what's gonna happen, guys. Whole world's gonna go to hell and it's just gonna get awful for Christians everywhere and you're all gonna be tortured and killed. Are you comforted? It's not comforting. How about this, though, for comfort? Whole world is going to hell, but here's the thing. Before the worst of it happens, Jesus comes for his church and removes the church to be with him in heaven, celebrating being with him for that time instead of being here on earth while all hell breaks loose. Is that comforting? That's comforting, that's what I'm talking about. Jesus said it's meant to be a comfort. Paul said it's meant to be a comfort. If you've heard anything else, you're hearing it wrong. It's not what the Bible says. Now while all that is important from a theological perspective, I don't want you to miss out on the blessing of what Jesus says in these verses. Really let this hit your heart, not just your head. He's saying he's preparing a place for his church, for you and I individually in heaven right now. Why is this a big deal? Because it means heaven is not like taking a flight on Southwest Airlines where there's no reserved seating and you've got a ticket but the gates are gonna open and then we're all just gonna run and try and find something interesting to do. It's not what heaven is like. There's a place that has been prepared for you, a specific place in heaven. And when you get there, Jesus is gonna show whatever this place is to you and he's gonna say, I made that for you. That's been waiting for you specifically. And I don't think we're talking about something like a room where the bedding is your favorite colors and you're like, how did you know, Lord? Because I'm God, I'm blown away. I don't think that's what we're talking about. I think when, when it says he's prepared a place for us, I think that term includes the stuff we're gonna do in heaven. Recreation, administration, tasks, challenges, uh, things to learn, things that have been prepared individually for you and I. And I have a feeling not one of them involves playing a harp in a diaper. Not one of them on a cloud. I'm sorry if you were looking forward to that, but I don't think that's happening. Because I don't need that visual in heaven for eternity, okay? Now all these passions that you had, and maybe all these passions that you still have, but have never had the chance to pursue. We all have those, don't we? Interests and, and desires and passions that we never had the opportunity to pursue or, or, or to fully realize. How many of us have a career we would have loved to have, but life got in the way of that and we had to pay bills and start earning income and deal with issues like feeding ourselves and things like that but we have these unfulfilled interests and passions. Those are all gonna be fulfilled in heaven, in the presence of Jesus, and we're gonna be able to enjoy those things into eternity. And I think we're gonna enjoy those things in a way we can't even imagine because we're gonna enjoy them in their purest form. Now, what do I mean by that? I, I mean that none of those passions are going to rival Jesus. That, that's going to be impossible. None of those passions will be a risk of becoming an idol or a false god in our lives. That, that's going to be impossible. We're gonna be able to enjoy all these things in 
total righteousness with Jesus for his glory. And I don't know what that does for you, but it blesses me to know there's a specific place, a specific future waiting for me in heaven. And Jesus himself has made the promise, not only have I prepared it for you, but I'm the one that's gonna get you there. I'm gonna get you there and make sure you get to enjoy it. I can't wait. Write this down. Our second reason for hope is that Jesus has prepared a place in heaven for each of us and Jesus has promised to get us there. Jesus has prepared a place in heaven for each of us and Jesus has promised to get us there. I'm so thankful for that. And then Jesus assures his disciples in verse four with these words, and where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Now I love Thomas, because none of the disciples understand what what Jesus has just said. But they all keep quiet, because none of them want to look stupid. And so they're probably rubbing their, their thin teenage beards and nodding their heads going, hmm. Mm, the way you know, we, yes, we do. We, we, we sure do know exactly what he's talking about. But Thomas is the one guy in the group who actually has the honesty and the bluntness to say, verse five, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And, and how can we know the way? Because we have no idea what you're talking about. Now, one of the most important verses in the Bible here, these words of Jesus, verse six, Jesus said to him, underline this, Thomas, I am the way the truth, and the life. You see, once you acknowledge the obvious in life, that there has to be a God, there has to be a creator, there has to be a designer in the universe, the focus shifts to questions like, so if there is a God, if there is a super intelligence in the universe, what does it expect of me? And can I know this God? Is there any way for me to relate to him? And there are practically an infinite number of religions and belief systems that try to answer those kinds of questions. But right here we see two great distinctives of Jesus in the gospel. Things that are unique to Christianity that make it different to every other belief system. Firstly, Jesus says it's not about something you do. It's not about somewhere you go or a list of tasks that you complete, a state of being to ascend to. It's not about any of that. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's, it's about me. It's about coming to me, learning of me, getting to know me, being transformed by me. Jesus doesn't say the way you know about. He says the way you know. The hope for the disciples wasn't that they knew who Jesus was and they knew about him. Oh, we know he's from Nazareth, originally born in Bethlehem. It's not that they knew about him. The hope was that they knew him. They had a relationship with him. If you study every other religion in the world, especially around the time of Christ, you'll find it to be a completely unique idea to Christianity that our hope is not in knowing a bunch of stuff or doing a bunch of stuff, but in knowing Jesus, a God who says, your hope is in knowing me, having a relationship with me. Have you ever asked someone for directions or instructions and you're totally tracking with them until they get to like step nine and then you're suddenly getting flustered because you're like, I can't remember what the first three steps are. I can't do this. What you really want to do at that point is you're like, can you just show me? Can you just like take me there with me? And that's what Jesus did. He said, I'll show you the way and I'll get you there. He made it real simple. He said, all you gotta do is know me, get next to me and stay there because he is the way, he is the way. We have a reason for hope and and a reason to not let our hearts be troubled. Write this down. Thirdly, we know the way. It's Jesus, we know the way. We're not going through life blind and and, and trying to figure some stuff out aimlessly. We know the way, it's Jesus. Jesus is unique in that he claimed that he himself was the way. Our hope is not in doing the things Jesus tells us to do. Our hope is in what Jesus has done. He is the way. And then secondly, Jesus would make this radical claim. Underline this, Jesus says next, No one comes to the Father 
except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now this is very interesting, and maybe this will make you feel a little better in our politically correct culture, because when you study this phrase in the original Greek, you'll find that it really should read like this. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus said. That's literally what he said. Make a note of this. Jesus claimed to be the only path to God. He claimed to be the only path to God. He claimed absolute exclusivity. He didn't claim to be a way. He claimed to be the way, the only way. Do all religions teach the same thing? Not according to Jesus. Do all paths and religions lead to the same God? Not according to Jesus. Can anyone or anything else get you to God other than Jesus? Not according to Jesus. Peter confirmed this when he was being grilled by the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter four. Peter told them this, it's on your outlines. He said, nor is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And the Apostle Paul would put it simply in his letter to his young protege, Timothy. It's also on your outlines. The Apostle Paul said, for there's one God and one mediator, one bridge between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So just to be as clear as I can be, if you are under the impression that Jesus is a way, that he's one of several ways to get to God, you need to understand that Jesus himself didn't give us the option to put him in that category. He claimed to be the way, the only way. And so if you wanna say that Jesus is just a way, then in order to do that, you need to call Jesus a liar because Jesus himself said he was the only way. And I know this can be frustrating to people in our culture because we just want everyone to get along. And we just want everyone to recognize that everybody can have their own truth. And we just want everyone to realize that all views and opinions are equally valid and equally true and it's frustrating because Jesus doesn't seem to get it. Because he claims to be the only way to God. That's so intolerant. That's so closed-minded. That's so unfair. That's so arrogant. Not if it's true. Not if it's true. If Jesus is telling the truth, and he is, that he really is the only way to be saved, the only way to have peace with God, the only way to get to heaven, if that is all really true, then him telling us that plainly is the most loving thing he could do. He wouldn't be loving if he lied to us and said, yeah, there's many different ways to get to me. Do the Buddha thing, do the Allah thing, do the Krishna thing, yeah, you'll eventually get to the same place. If that's not true, that's not loving. This idea was so important and crucial in the first several years of the church that for the first few years, our belief system wasn't even called Christianity. It was simply called the way. Your reference on that is Acts 9.2. Now if Jesus wasn't telling the truth about being the only way, then he wasn't a great teacher or a moral person or a good man. If he wasn't telling the truth, he's either crazy and delusional or he's a liar. Because if there was a whole bunch of other ways for people to get to heaven, why in the world would Jesus have gone through the beatings, the torture, and his death on the cross? If that wasn't necessary, he wasn't being good or noble. He was absolutely crazy. Does it make any sense if I say, you know what? I want my family to know how much I love them. And so I'm going to give them a demonstration of my love because I want them to know that I would die for them. So in a few days, even though I love you, church, I'm gonna go stand on the railway tracks and let a train hit me so that my family will know that I would die for them. Now, if you read in the paper that I went and stood in front of a train and let a train hit me and I died. How's that conversation going to go? Is it gonna go, wow, that guy loves his family. He loves his family. Or is the conversation gonna go like this? He was clearly not in his right mind. Thank God it was a quick death. 
I think it's gonna be the second. You see, if Jesus didn't need to suffer and die on the cross, there's nothing good about it. There's nothing noble about it. He's just a lunatic. You can't pretend that it was anything other than insanity unless it was absolutely necessary. And if Jesus knew that there were other ways to be saved, but he said he was the only one, then he's not good either. He's a liar. Not only that, but the blood of millions is on his hands because of all the Christians who have died in the last 2,000 years because they wouldn't change their belief that Jesus is the only way. Jesus would be responsible for all those deaths. People who were fed to lions in the Roman circus, had their heads cut off by ISIS. Jesus would be responsible for all of that unnecessarily. Or the only other option is that Jesus is telling the truth. But we have to dispense with this nonsense that he was a good man or a great teacher or a moral example. He's either God or he's out of his mind or he's a wicked liar. But he doesn't give you the option to call him just another spiritual guru, just another reincarnation of enlightenment. He doesn't give you that option. The more you look into Jesus, the more you'll begin to realize that he was and is telling the truth. He's the only way. He's the only way. And truth is not concerned with being politically correct. And God is truth. The reality is that we live in a culture that's more concerned with people's feelings than it is with truth. Two plus two equals five. No, it doesn't. It equals four. Your thinking offends me. Okay, it equals five. Good. We're on the same page. Now, here's what Jesus himself said about that type of thinking. I call it the choose-your-own-adventure spirituality. You know, you open a book. There is a God. Yes, I like that. Turn to page seven. Okay, page seven. This God requires you to live for him instead of yourself. No, I don't like that. That's turn to page nine. Then there's another option. This God requires you to do whatever you feel will make you most happy. Turn to page 13. Yeah, I'll do that one. And you end up with this choose-your-own-adventure spirituality, doing whatever makes you feel good and seems good to you, and you invent your own God. Here's what Jesus said about that. I think it's on your outlines. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. In other words, Jesus says, there's a path in life that leads to hell, and it's not a path, it's a 10-lane highway, and it's easy to drive, and it's easy to find, and that's the road most people are on, because it's easy. And he said, there's another road, though, that leads to life, eternal life, but it's a narrow path. And it's difficult because you have to die to yourself and choose to live for God instead. And he said, most people don't find it. And the reason most people don't find it is because they don't want to find it. It's an easier drive on the highway. There's a path where you don't have to change. There's a path where you can choose your own beliefs. There's a path where everyone is welcome to live as they please and do what they want and nobody ever calls anybody out on anything. That path exists. It's the path where everybody likes you and nobody is offended by anything you say. But Jesus pointed out it's the path that leads to destruction, eternal destruction. The way that leads to life is narrow. How narrow? One way. Jesus, one way. And right after Jesus says that, in the same conversation, in the context of talking about the narrow and broad paths, Jesus says this in the very next verse in Matthew 7. He goes on and he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. So who are these prophets Jesus are talking about? It's the very next verse. So he's talking about those who teach that you can be saved by walking the broad path and entering heaven through the wide gate. Those who teach there are many ways to get to heaven. Jesus says they're gonna look like sheep. They're gonna look humble. They're gonna look spiritual. They're gonna look loving and gentle. 
He says, but let me tell you the truth. Inside, they're wolves and what they're teaching leads straight to hell. Straight to hell. See, our ears can hear something like, everyone has their own path. Everyone has their own journey. And whatever way that works out, I think everything works out in the end. Everything works out in the end. That sounds so nice. But Jesus says, that's the doctrine of demons. That's the message of hell. Because it leads to hell. There's nothing loving or peaceful about it. We'll jump back to our text in verse 7. Jesus says to his disciples, If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Underline that. You know him and have seen him. This is an incredible thing. Jesus is telling his disciples and us that he is the exact representation of our father in heaven. If we want to know what the father is like, all we have to do is look at Jesus because they're one and the same. So much so that Jesus told his disciples that when it came to their heavenly father, you know him and have seen him. Why? Because they had seen him, Jesus. We'll unpack this idea more in a couple of verses. Philip said to him, verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. This is hilarious if you're not picking this up because this is hands down one of the most ambitious requests in all of Scripture. Philip says, Lord, 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 we're having some trouble like connecting and understanding here. So the, the quickest way to just get us all on the same page would be if you could just have the Father come down from heaven for a second and reveal himself to us. <clears throat> That's all we need, Lord. Then we'll all be on the same page and we can carry on with our conversation. And this is what we cry out too when everything seems to be going wrong, right? We're like, where are you, God? All I need is for you to just walk into my living room right now. But where are you? Philip told Jesus, just have the Father reveal himself to us and then everything will be okay. That's all we need. And if that's where you're at in your life right now, God, where are you? Where are you? Well, just show yourself. Listen to how Jesus responds to Philip's request and put your name in Philip's place. This is gonna mess you up. Verse nine, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who's seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? I've never left you, Philip. I've never forsaken you. And he says this to us too. You've seen me in my word. You've seen me on the cross through communion. You felt my presence in your life. How can you ask God, where are you? We have hope and we need not be troubled because number four, we've seen the Father and we've experienced his character. We've seen the Father and we've experienced his character. We know what he's like. We know what he's like. All we have to do is look at Jesus and we can see and know and understand what God is like. We've been saved by him. We've been comforted by him. We've been strengthened by him. What's the Father like? He's like Jesus. He's good. He's good and then he's good some more and he's faithful and he's kind and he's patient and he's gracious and he's available and he's approachable and he's loving. We've seen Jesus and we've seen the Father. Again, Jesus is being very clear that he's God, that he's one with the Father. So much so that because the disciples had seen Jesus, it was as good as having seen the Father. Yet again, Jesus is not claiming to be a moral teacher or a spiritual guide or, or one among a historical lineage of gurus. He's claiming to be God in the flesh. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus replies by saying, you're looking at him. You're looking at him. In fact, hundreds of years earlier, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah recorded a prophecy about the coming Messiah, which was Jesus. We read this around every Christmas, and this is what it says. It's on your outlines. It's a prophecy about Messiah, about Jesus when he would come, and it says, for unto us 
a child is born, unto us a son is given. Pretty obvious it's talking about Jesus, right? Well, keep reading. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor Mighty God. So he's going to be God. Then get this, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's not simply that Jesus represents the Father. It's more profound than that. It's that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are one. They're one in a mystical, profound sense, deeper than we could understand. You've seen one, you've seen them all. Now, how exactly does that work? Well, actually, you know, I figured it out and I want to share it with you. Said no pastor ever. If anybody tells you they figured out the Trinity, they're lying or they're just flat out wrong and they're going to realize that a little bit later. Here's the truth. This is the Trinity. This is the concept of the Trinity. This is your brain, okay? There's a deficit there. And total understanding of the Trinity exists in a giant gap between our intellectual abilities of comprehension and the reality of what the Trinity is. Now, when we get to heaven and we're in resurrected bodies, we're going to get it. But in this life, we can't get it. And I always tell people, if you're like, well, I can't accept that. I'll give you another example. You understand that your mind literally cannot conceive of anything without a beginning? We know that about God, but your brain, my brain, cannot understand that. We cannot comprehend anything existing that is uncreated, infinite, and has no beginning. Our brains can't actually grasp that. We can talk about it, but we can't fully comprehend it. Jesus revealed the Trinity in his words, so we believe it, but we're going to have to wait a little, wait a little while before we understand it. Now this gospel, the gospel of John, begins with these three verses where it talks about Jesus as being the word. So every time it talks about the word here, it's talking about Jesus. First three verses of the Gospel of John read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. So make a note of this, the starting point of all that is Christian is the belief that Jesus is God. The starting point of all that is Christian is that Jesus is God. Anyone or any group that doesn't believe that Jesus is God is not Christian, period. Nothing more to talk about. Now, not everyone who believes Jesus is God is Christian, but that's the starting point. What I mean by that is there are those who teach that Jesus is God, but he's not enough to save you. You have to believe in Jesus, and also do all these other things as well. But the starting point of identifying something as Christian is the belief that Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. He's saying, Philip, trust me. I only do and say what the Father tells me to because we're one. And if you don't take my word for it, then believe me based on the miracles you've seen me do, the blind that see, the lame that now walk, and the dead that have been raised. Verse 12, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do, because I go to my Father. So get this, Jesus tells his disciples that they're going to do mighty miracles too, just as they've seen him do, and that this is going to happen because he's returning to heaven. What? Jesus was speaking about the Holy Spirit who would come and indwell believers just a short time into the future. And the Holy Spirit would fill ordinary believers with the same power that flowed through Jesus when he ministered on the earth because it would be the same Holy Spirit. They too would preach the gospel with power. They too would feed the hungry. They too would love anyone who sought the Lord. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but Jeff, it says greater works. Now what have believers ever done that's greater than Jesus walking on water? What miracles have believers ever seen that 
greater than Jesus just speaking to the dead and calling them up. What's greater? Seeing people saved. Seeing people saved. Jesus hadn't died yet. Sins had not been paid for when Jesus said this to his disciples. And far greater than the miracle of a broken temporal body being healed is the miracle of a broken eternal soul being made whole through salvation. Have you ever seen a person get saved? Have you ever known someone whose life changed because of Jesus? Jesus would tell you, you have witnessed a greater miracle than the 5,000 being fed on the hillside or the 12 lepers being healed by Jesus. Truly, write this down, salvation is the greatest miracle that could ever take place in a person's life. Salvation is the greatest miracle that could ever take place in a person's life. Verse 13, Jesus says, and whatever you ask, underline, in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything, and then underline again, in my name, I will do it. Here's our fifth reason for great hope. Write this down. We can pray to a God who hears us. We can pray to a God who hears us. Now the prosperity gospel guys love this verse because they're like, I got it, just got a name drop Jesus and I can upgrade my car. But I want you to start praying for that supercar for a second and keep two things in mind. Firstly, Jesus is talking to disciples. His inner 12 disciples, guys that love him and have left everything to follow after him. They were serious about following him and living for him. Keep that in mind. Secondly, we know when the Bible is repetitive or redundant, the Holy Spirit wants to get our attention. Now what phrase comes up in both verse 13 and verse 14? In my name. Not simply if you ask anything, but if you ask anything in my name. Now in order to ask something in the name of Jesus, it means literally on his behalf, which means you have to ask something that is in harmony with his nature and that's for his glory. Let me explain what I mean. If you went to my wife and said, I'm here to collect all of Jeff's guitars. Jeff said I could have them all. My wife would say, no, he didn't. And you might say, but I'm asking in the name of Jeff. And she would reply, that's not in his nature. So you can't ask that in his name. Now in order to ask something in the name of Jesus, you have to ask something that's in harmony with his nature and for his glory. So if you're praying, God, give me a new spouse. It, it could be a grilling accident. You, you could get them into skydiving. Lord, how, however you want to do it. You, you know so much more than I do. You choose how it happens, Lord. But do it, Lord, in the name of Jesus. It's not the heart of God. And he's not going to answer your request because it's not in his name. But if you're praying, God, please bring your peace into my marriage Please rid me of bitterness. Help us both to be led by your spirit in the way we treat each other. The Lord says, ah, yes, yes. That's in line with my character. That's for my glory. That's in my name. So yes. And when we're walking with the Lord, when we're seeking to serve and honor him, we're going to find ourselves desiring the same things he desires, things that are in harmony with his nature. So we can pray for them with confidence, knowing that he hears us and knowing that he'll answer our prayers. If he doesn't, then we're just out of whack with his will or our timing is a little bit off. Now we come to a verse that's often misunderstood, mistaught and misapplied. Verse 15, underline this. If you love me, Jesus says, keep my commandments. Now in the original Greek, the verse reads like this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, this isn't Jesus being like a passive-aggressive, guilt-tripping rabbi, being like, keep my commandments. Also, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's not what he's doing. He's making a promise to them and giving them an encouragement. He's saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's sharing the same message that is so beautifully shared in the book of James, namely that a genuine love for the Lord will produce evidence of that love in the life of a person. 
That's what the book of James is all about. It's not that you have to do works, it's that works flow out of the life of a person who loves the Lord. The Bible calls it fruit because the idea is just that as fruit is the natural byproduct of a fruit tree, good works are the natural byproduct of a heart that loves Jesus. Now remember what Jesus has just told his disciples. He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. He's just building on that same idea that it's all about him. And if they will focus on knowing him and on loving him and on having a relationship with him, they will naturally keep his commandments. It's going to happen naturally. The heart that is in love with Jesus will naturally grow in love toward the church and the people of God. The heart that is in love with Jesus will naturally grow in the direction of servanthood and keeping the commands of the Lord. Make a note of this. A genuine love for Jesus naturally results in obedience to Jesus. A genuine love for Jesus naturally results in obedience to Jesus. The Apostle John put it this way in his first epistle. John said, by this, so this is the evidence, by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And then he says this beautiful thing. And his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. They're the natural byproduct of a heart that loves the Lord. If serving the Lord, if keeping his commands is burdensome to you, then you're not doing it out of a love for the Lord. Your love has grown cold, it's been lost, and you're just trying to do it as following empty commands. Jesus tells us, and he's gonna talk about it more later on at the Last Supper, he's like, just focus on me, on your relationship with me, and the works happen, the righteousness happens, keeping my commandments happens. How? John ends by saying, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. In other words, once we give our lives to Jesus, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives and actually gives us the power to live for Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus goes on to talk about in the next verse. Verse 16, he says, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another, underline, another helper. The word helper there is the Greek word parakletos, which can also be translated as comforter, helper, comforter. And if I had you underline that word another, because the Greek word that's used there is the word alos, which means the same of a different kind. It's the root word that we use for our English word allegory. So an allegory is a different way of depicting the same thing. So when Jesus says another helper, he's saying, I will give you the same helper or comforter in a different form. That's what he's literally saying. Who was the first comforter if it's another comforter? is Jesus himself, Jesus himself. And what's the purpose of Jesus sending this Holy Spirit to his disciples, to you and I? He says that he may abide with you and then underline forever, forever, that he might be with you forever. We have a reason for hope, write this down, because God is always with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. He's always with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was telling his disciples, I'm God. The Father and I are one, and I'm gonna to return to you in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And in the Holy Spirit, I'm gonna be with you forever. And if that sounds weird to you, just wait till we reach verse 18. Verse 17, Jesus says, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's the big change that took place when the Holy Spirit was given to believers on the day the church was born, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 in 32 AD. The Holy Spirit had been on the earth among those who loved the Lord, but now it was actually going to take up residence within those who loved the Lord. He was going to come and live inside every believer and never leave. This was an incredible change. I love verse 18. Jesus says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Are you catching this? Here's the Trinity again. In verse 17, Jesus talks about how the Spirit is going to come and he refers to the Holy Spirit as he. 
But then in verse 18, did you catch this? Jesus says of the Holy Spirit coming to the disciples, he says what? I will come to you. I will come to you. And he refers to the Holy Spirit as I. And that's because just as Jesus and the Father are one, so too are Jesus and the Holy Spirit one. What a precious verse this is. We're never alone. We're never alone, not for a moment. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And indeed he has. He's not only among us, he's in us at this very moment. Jesus is here. The Father is here. The Spirit is here. If your heart is troubled this morning for any reason, it need not be so. Every one of these five reasons we've shared for hope have nothing to do with anything going on in your life or my life. That's why they're so precious. None of these reasons for hope change whether you're in a good season or a brutally difficult season. Jesus has made hope available to all of us. The decision we have to make is whether we're going to get our peace and our joy from Jesus and from the reasons he gives us for hope, or whether we're going to tie our peace and our joy to how things are going in our life. If things are going difficult in your life, let it be a reminder to you that the circumstances in your life aren't meant to give you your peace and joy anyway. Let it be a reminder to you as you realize, well, I'm reminded because life's giving me no peace and joy right now. Let it be a reminder you're supposed to get it from the Lord. And if everything's great in your life right now, and so you're thinking, I'm full of peace and I'm full of joy, but if you're honest with yourself, you know it's because life's going great right now. You're setting yourself up for bitter and brutal disappointment because life's not always going to go well. And when things start going bad, you're going to be crying out, God, where are you? Reveal yourself to me. And he's going to say, I've been with you this whole time. You were just choosing not to get your joy and your peace from me, but from the circumstances of your life. And now your life has changed. And the peace and joy have left. So come back to me and get it. Get your joy and your peace from Jesus, whether things are going great or whether they're going very difficult right now. Next, we can't live for Jesus. We can't keep his commandments. We can't live fruitful lives without the power of the Holy Spirit. Have you noticed this? We need it every single day. We need to rely on it. We need to rest in it. And so if you've been trying to live for Jesus on your own strength, here's what I know about you. You're tired. You're tired. You're worn out. And you're beaten down. And it's not going well. Because when you try to be righteous and live for God in your own strength instead of the strength of the Holy Spirit, it is a burden and it grinds on you. It wears you out. But if you live in the power of the Holy Spirit, following Jesus is not a burden. Keeping his commands isn't even something you have to strive for. It just happens. So if following Jesus has been burdensome, don't sit there today and think, I'm going to take communion and double down on my commitment to the Lord. I'm going to try twice as hard this week to really do good for Jesus. Don't do that. You're just going to fall even harder. You're going to be back here next Sunday even more tired if you come back at all. Instead, repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry for trying to be righteous on my own. You know what Paul said? I love this verse. He says to the Galatian church when they're trying to do this, he says, foolish Galatians, having begun in the spirit, are you now seeking to be perfected in the flesh? So in other words, Paul says, you guys are so dumb. You were saved by grace and you understood when you were saved that you were only saved because Jesus did everything. But now that you're saved, you're going to do everything? Really? You couldn't be righteous enough to save yourself, but now that you're saved, on your own, you're going to live righteous enough? Really? 
The same way you were saved is the same way you live for Jesus. It's by the grace of God. It's the work of his spirit. So if that's you and you're just worn out, take communion, repent for even trying yourself and focus on your relationship with Jesus. Say, Jesus, I just want to be close to you. I want to be next to you. And I want to be full of your spirit. And focus on your relationship with the Lord. And everything else will flow out of that. Lastly, if you believe there's more than one way to be saved, I need you to know that you're calling Jesus a liar. That's the bottom line. And all I want to tell you today is that Jesus wasn't crazy and Jesus wasn't lying. But if you believe there's more than one way to be saved, you're being lied to. You're believing a lie. And perhaps worst of all, you may be passing that lie on to other people. If you believe that there's more than one way to be saved, then you're placing your trust in a God that doesn't exist. If you think that Jesus was just a good man or a great spiritual teacher, then you believe in a Jesus who didn't exist and a Jesus who never taught anything like that. And that Jesus can't save you because he never existed. And you may think that the path you're on is preferable, that it's more comfortable, that it's more enlightened, that it's more inclusive, but Jesus said it leads to destruction and death. And he was telling the truth. If that's the path you're on, I want to urge you to be more concerned with the truth than anything else. Turn to Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Give your life to Jesus and he will lead you to truth. He will lead you to life. With that, let's pray. Will you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you for the reminder that you share with us that the only reason we can do anything good is because of the work that you do in us, your spirit in us. And so Father, if any of us have been trying to live for you on our own strength, I ask that you would forgive us, Jesus. Lord, I pray for us because I know if we're doing that, we are worn out and tired because you didn't intend us to be powered by our own strength. You intended for us to be powered by your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I pray that you would fill us with your Spirit right now. Your presence, the presence of your Son, Jesus. I pray that you would fill us afresh with your Spirit. And that we would listen to the call of your Spirit to draw close to you. Not, not to strive to just try and be good. But to pursue you. To pursue knowing you being close to you, knowing that following you and living for you is not meant to be a burden. You said yourself, your yoke is easy, your burden is light. And in you we find rest for our souls. So Jesus, forgive us for even trying on our own strength when we can do nothing apart from you. Help us to abide in you, Jesus, to enjoy you, to live with you in relationship with you. And then, Father, we also ask forgiveness if we've been getting our joy and peace or trying to get it from the circumstances of our life. We recognize that the model you gave your disciples was that our peace and joy would come from you, from heaven, and from our salvation, from things that nothing and no one can take away from us. So, Father, I pray for the gift of joy for anyone among us who hasn't had it for a long time because life has not offered it. I pray that we would discover afresh and anew today you as our source of joy and peace, Lord. That even as we, we go to work, as we go to school tomorrow, something would be different. That we would be connected to you as our source of joy and peace. And nothing in our lives would be what we look to to get those things from. Thank you for offering that to us, Jesus. Help us to accept your invitation, Lord. I just want to encourage you to, to still your heart before the Lord and allow him to speak to you. Allow him to reveal to you if, if any of these scenarios we're describing is your life or has been your life. And just say, Holy Spirit, would you tell me if that's been me?
and tell me if I need to change. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.